You may not like what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway because I'm not afraid to speak out. I think that the music in hell for eternally be some of this rock music with all its vulgarities. And Catacombs. We're back here with episode four. We are still up and running somehow, and Carly even made it back for her second consecutive episode, so that's great. Hello. Look who's at my feet. Oh, our dog Winston is... Special guest. Our special guest of the day, outside of the other special guest who we'll mention later. But yeah, thanks for returning to Lost in the Catacombs. Just want to remind everyone to follow and subscribe wherever they get their podcasts. And if you dig the show, leave a cool five-star review. And also, don't forget to follow us on social media, on Instagram, at Lost Catacombs Media, on Twitter, at Catacombs Media, and do a simple Facebook search for Lost in the Catacombs. You can also find me on Substack to find Q&As with various bands. That is at lostinthecatacombs.substack.com. If you'd like to reach out to us, do so at lostinthecatacombspodcast at gmail.com. Your Substack gets new content weekly. Yes, that is correct. That's why I have a producer here to remind me of the stuff (laughs) I forget. I keep you online. Yes, I also want to wish everyone a happy new Cattle Decapitation Record Day. Their new record, Terracite, is out, and it's an absolute masterpiece. I cannot stop listening to it, and obviously anybody that listens to this podcast probably knows who Cattle Decapitation is, so not much to say about that, but just another phenomenal release kind of just builds on the sound and progression they had on Death Atlas. The song And the World Will Go On Without You is a highlight for me. Such a fantastic song and a fantastic record in general, as I've said now numerous times. So this is crazy to say, but don't pass up on the new Cattle Decapitation record. I was playing it in the car today, driving to dinner with Carly, and she said, can we play something less chaotic? So I think (laughs) you know they did something right. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, I do want to talk a little bit about today's guest. We will be joined by the blackened doom metal band from Texas, Krigsgrove. And Carly, I do want to kind of ask you this routinely nowadays, but since you edit the interviews, kind of got to get your thoughts on kind of the backstory and everything. I know you're a fan of listening to the band's stories and how they got together and you know how they've progressed over the years what did you think about this one i thought it was great and i always love to you know hear the kind of questions that you ask i feel like you always put so much thought into um your interviews but i definitely loved this one i feel like my favorite part was you know where he sort of dives into he's a dad he goes into that he talks about you know what it's like introducing his six-year-old son i think is how old he was um to bands with pretty harsh names and how he doesn't really want to go into that yet. Yes, we are bringing Carly to the endearing side of music, or heavy music, I should say, 
with family stories. <laughs> if a six-year-old can get into it, I guess I can too. Correct. So, bring yourself to the dark side. But anyway, uh, Kriggs Grob is a band that's been around for two decades now, so 20 years as a band, and they've released records like The Carry-On Fields, The Leviathan Crown, Waves of Degradation, The Sundering, and Leave No Path to Follow. And now in June, they will release another full length called Fires in the Fall on Wise Blood Records. I have heard the album in full, and it is their best work yet. In my opinion, this is their magnus opus, and I can't wait for everyone to listen to this in full because it's such an experience, and you know I think people will get a kick out of it. Carly, you haven't listened to it yet, but uh, you would love it. You really think so? I think so. Maybe we'll play it next time we're in the car. There you go. But yeah, it's uh, it's a great record, and I had such a fun time speaking with David from Curtis Grob about the record and you know the history of the band, the recording of the album, maybe how this is a little bit different than the Sundering, which they kind of recorded back to back, or I, I shouldn't say recorded, they wrote back to back. So, yeah, it was really interesting to hear his take on all of that, but you'll just have to listen to the interview later. But first, we're bringing it back. Josh's Weekly Chat with an Artificial Intelligence Bot. That's right. Josh's Weekly Chat with an Artificial Intelligence Bot is back. Everybody's favorite segment of the show, including Carly's. I loved it last time. Yes, you laughed very hard, and I think it's because of the sound effect that I put in with it that was super corny but also really cool <laughs> I, I love corny so in honor of the new cattle decapitation record that is out today as we're recording this episode i asked this bot to write a horror movie based on cattle decapitations record death atlas and here's what it had to say The movie opens with a small town in the middle of nowhere, plagued by a series of unexplainable events. Cattle ranchers wake up to find their livestock decapitated, (laughs) (laughs) with no signs of forced entry or struggle. Soon, the decapitation spread to the town's human inhabitants, and panic sets in as the residents realize that they are being targeted by an unknown force. The sheriff, a hardened veteran, with a troubled past takes charge of the investigation as he delves deeper into the mystery. He discovers that the killings are connected to a band named Cattle Decapitation and their latest album, Death Atlas. The album's lyrics, which speak of the impending collapse of humanity and the rise of a new world order, seem to be manifesting themselves in the town. I'm actually quite interested so far. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. Whoa. I feel like if your band's name is Cattle Decapitation, if you want to get away with a crime, don't go around decapitating cattle. Yeah, that's probably a smart move. So it says, As the death toll rises, the sheriff realizes that he must confront the source of the evil. He seeks out the band's lead singer, who lives in seclusion on a nearby farm. The singer, a charismatic figure with a dark past, reveals that he made a pact with a demonic entity, which granted him immense power and success in exchange for spreading its message of doom and destruction. 
The sheriff and the singer engage in a tense standoff as the demonic force manifests itself in a horrifying display of violence and chaos. In the end, the sheriff manages to destroy the source of the evil, but not before many lives are lost and the town is forever scarred by the events that transpired. This reminds me of Color Out of Space for some reason. Really? A little, doesn't it? I don't think so. With that, that is a great sh- movie, though. With that sheriff showing up and the okay, unexplained yeah, maybe a events. Little bit. Yeah. That is a killer movie, though, mm-hmm. for sure. It's got Nicolas Cage, of course. Yeah. This AI bot made this a really short movie, it seems like. So we go from <laughs> these climactic events at the, off the get-go, and then there's a standoff, so that's crazy. But anyway, it says, As the credits roll, the audience is left with a sense of unease as they realize that the force of darkness are ever-present, waiting to be unleashed upon an unsuspecting world. The movie serves as a warning of the dangers of playing with forces beyond our understanding and the consequences that come with embracing nihilistic philosophies. Whoa. Wow. This AI bot, I can't tell if it likes the band Cattle Decapitation or not. I think it considers Cattle Decapitation its muse at this point. I mean, their lyrics often deal with very current events and like how we're slowly killing the world and um, how we should probably put an end to that before we kill ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I think it was it was a weird turn of events to see it go in the demonic entity part, but either way, interesting movie. Definitely better than the last one I asked it to create. Yeah, this was awesome. Yeah, I thought so too. A little literal, but... Yeah, the whole <laughs> cattle being decapitated went a little too far. What did you expect? Yeah, I was like, what is happening? But whatever, I guess. Anyway, maybe AI is not as smart as we thought it was. I should have just gotten to an argument with this AI bot. That's what I I'm did. I'm just going to argue with it next time. That's literally what I did when Snapchat came out with their AI bot. I'm just going to say next time, my if I hate the movie, instead of just reading it on air, I'm just going to say, this sucks. Write a new one. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do next time. Write a version two. Yeah. Write another version. This movie sucks. Yeesh. But anyway, as I mentioned, we should probably right now jump into the interview with Krigsgrav. But first, I do want to play a clip from their new record, Fires in the Fall. This song is called In Seas of Perdition. Let's check it out and jump right into the interview with David. everyone we have david from Krigsgrove here uh david thanks so much for taking the time to do this really appreciate it the new album fires in the fall is out june 23rd on wise blood records uh, if i'm not mistaken the band has been around now for about 20 years if that's correct is that is that right that is correct thanks for having me first of all yeah um and yeah records coming out on the 23rd it's album number seven and uh it has been 
it'll be 19 years this fall so it's hard to believe it's hard to say that out loud but yeah, yeah it's been a long time now can you kind of take us back to the genesis of the project and how this really all came together for those unfamiliar sure um basically i was always one step behind my friend chris uh, he's a year and a half older than me he would seem to always get into stuff first and i would hear it and say i don't know if i like how rough that production sounds or you know extreme vocals and stuff to me at the time was a whole new thing and he would get into it first and then it would take about a year or so and then finally i would kind of get the picture and see what he saw in it you know um so yeah like we childhood friends and into you know high school and all that and um and i distinctly remember that it was just kind of it was during a a bomb threat at school that they evacuated us outside it was nothing of course but we were all just standing around and it was like october i want to say of 04 and just killing time until they let us back in and that's when i kind of approached him and said hey i'm thinking of doing like a a black metal project and you know i'll just play everything and can you sing? Because I cannot scream. I can't do any of that. So even to this day, I can't. So I said, do you think you could? And he was like, I could try. Yes. You know, like it was just, it totally formed out of just an experiment of like, would you be willing to give it a shot? And he's like, yeah, I guess. And um, I had this cheap little Fostex eight track, you know, digital recorder and just kind of recorded a few ideas and had him try out some vocals on it. And it took a few attempts before he kind of found something that works that sounds about right you know so um it all just kind of started from that and really it was with no purpose to just create this long-standing band that's you know gonna go on for albums and albums you know we just kind of were fans of black metal and said well, we could we could do that and be fun let's do let's do some black metal together and then it just kind of evolved from there basically i might have touched on this a little bit but do you remember like the first connection you felt to the extreme side of music um, or like maybe who some of those first like bands were that you connected with? Yeah. So, I mean, the first ones I was really kind of exposed to were, um, you know, what was kind of somewhat mainstream at the time, which was Demo Borgir and, and uh, Cradle of Filth and um, started getting into like Bork Nagar and, and Emperor and things like that. And uh, some of the more, um, harsher things because obviously Dimu Borgir kind of has a little bit cleaner production and all that kind of stuff and it took me longer to get into your you know Dark Throne records and stuff like that but um, but no I really loved early on I was really taken by the uh, almost punk energy and I'm not a punk guy but the punk energy of like uh, Carpathian Forest um, I loved I was a big Carpathian Forest fan and uh, we even did a cover uh, in Norwegian to the best of our ability of, of a Carpathian Forest tune on one of the early demos. But um, but yeah, even though it took me a while to get there, um, that's kind of what I connected to was kind of once I started getting into the, the harsher black metal, um, I really enjoyed stuff like that and some of the old Gorgoroth albums and things like that. But uh, initially it all started with the pretty stuff the symphonic stuff you know yeah uh, empiricism by bort nagar was a big one and of course puritanical euphoric misanthropia but but dimu was was they were played heavily when i was hanging out with my friends you know yeah for me like growing up in the midwest uh, obviously you're familiar with the indianapolis area because of wise blood records but when i was younger like the big thing here was hardcore uh, like the whole metalcore scene was going on 
So for me, getting into like the super extreme side of things, like you mentioned Dark Throne, I think Dark Throne was that first, it was the first, I guess, black metal band that I kind of really got into. And I remember it just clicking one day and I don't know why it clicked, but for a while, I just never could get into it. And then you sit down and you listen to those Dark Throne records, especially A Blaze in the Northern Sky. I remember vividly it just clicking one day and being like, for some reason, I get it now. Like, for some yeah. reason, I understand that it's like it's the atmosphere they create, but even like the rawness of it. And like, you kind of talked about like the punkier side of things. Like, those earlier Dark Throne albums, like, do have those elements of like a lot of punk elements to them yeah. in terms of the production and everything. Do you remember like it just clicking for you at one point, or was it kind of more gradual when you were getting into that side of things? It was a little gradual. Um, I came from kind of a thrash background, you know, a band I was in in high school was very much that. And that's kind of how we dissolved was that I was very heavily into thrash and wanting to kind of take it to the next step of intensity. And um, so we initially started just listening to your Metallica and Megadeth and stuff like that. And then I was kind of getting more into the German scene, old Sodom records and stuff. And that's kind of the genesis of that is because those early albums are so raw and primitive, you know, that it kind of um, lends itself to, you know, the, getting into black metal and more raw death metal and stuff like that. And the other guys just kind of wanted to do more progressive type stuff, Queensryche type stuff, which I love. It's great, but I just didn't want to play that, you know, but um, as far as it kind of clicking, I'd say for me, it was, probably diving further into emperor's discography um because the first one i had heard was the debut in the night side eclipse and right at the time i mean I, I i had to develop an appreciation for that harsh production so at the time i was just like oh man this is rough you know the songs are cool but it's rough and then once i started listening to later albums you know like anthems and, and nine equilibrium i don't think gets enough love but um yeah that listening to those the remaining albums of their discography really uh, opened my eyes to what it can be. You know what I mean? Like, and the early stuff I wrote was nothing near the level of Emperor, of course, but, but hearing, you know, that there, there aren't such uh, strict boundaries and stuff was, uh, was eye opening and um, inspiring, you know, for what, what could be in the future, you know. Were you growing up in Texas? Yeah, I'm from New York originally, but I've lived here for most of my life okay. and uh, and grew up here, yeah. What was the scene like there in Texas growing up? Was there any sort of black metal or doom metal scene? Uh, there, the, As far as straight up black metal goes, there wasn't a lot. I mean, you know, people lean on Absu pretty hard when it comes to Texas, uh, Texas black metal. But um, there were a few, you know, Justin, he was in a, a pretty primitive black metal band called Dagon um with his brother and they were always cool like before i even knew him i had gone to a couple of their shows and stuff and um but yeah there was there was a lot more death metal a lot right. more kind of brutal death metal type stuff um coming out of here and you know even with Krigsgrove, i never really anticipated uh, you know playing live with it or anything like that there just wasn't a whole lot uh, i'm trying to think of some of the others that were still around at the time um but no, I mean, as far as the the scene as is a in, as a whole, a lot very death metal, very groove, you know, people trying to be Pantera and stuff, and yeah, 
Like you'd even, it was so confusing. There'd be bands from other states that would move to Texas and try to sound exactly like Pantera. And I'm gonna say, what are you, what are you doing? We already have one. We already have a Pantera. Just do something different, you know? Yeah. But um, there wasn't much to, to cling to in terms of, uh, of black metal, you know, at the time, at least. I think, you know, this kind of segues perfectly in, but, you know, for those unfamiliar with the sound of Kriegsgrab, you all blend together elements of black metal and, I guess, doom metal. You know, when it came to finding your sound and using elements from, I guess, of those two different subgenres, how much of that was organic rather than intentional? I'd say the only thing intentional through Kriegsgrab's whole existence was the really early stuff and uh, the debut full length, the Leviathan Crown. Those were very intentional it's going to sound this way i want it to sound like these bands and it's just kind of a an ode to to black metal and we just kind of didn't we weren't trying to reinvent the wheel or anything and but it wasn't until the second album from the second album onwards uh from lux cop to est onwards is when um we just basically said let's just write what we write <laughs> and you know i think from that point on no two albums really sound the same you know, the doom elements really, like I started introducing some slower tempos on Luke's Cop to Est, um, but the actual full-on like doom aspects of things uh, just kind of came about in a really interesting way on uh, our album Leave No Path to Follow from 2018, I think it was, but um, that one's basically a straight-up doom album, and it just stemmed from going through some changes in the band lineup wise, you know, we had to dismiss one member, another member ended up uh, leaving the band because he was moving to uh, Colorado. So it was just me and Justin and uh, we were both kind of working on ideas on our own and um, just approached each other. I was hitting some major writer's block as far as writing stuff that truly sounds like Krigsgrove. And, and I just told him one day, I said, look, man, I don't know what you're coming up with over there, but I seem to only be coming up with, just doom stuff like slow stuff and he was relieved because he's like me too he's like that's all i've been able to come up with so it's just funny how it was never an intentional move and uh, but once we started doing it like we still view that album as kind of an ugly album for us of just getting it out of our system of just going that hard into that particular subgenre. but now i mean we enjoyed it still enjoy it so i love doom metal so introducing that into uh, our sound from there on has been very, very natural for us. And, um, you know, Justin has a deep love for old, you know, melodic death metal and Edge of Sanity and stuff like that, which I enjoy as well, old At The Gates and stuff like that. So there's very, very rarely is there some sort of a new element uh, introduced that we're just like, no, we're not putting that in there. You know, it's like if, if we work it into our stuff, it's always going to kind of sound like Kriegsgrove no matter what, really, so. Why do you think that it just kind of hit you all of a sudden that you guys were going to do your own thing rather than try and sound like someone else? It wasn't any sort of outside input. Um, you know, the debut album just kind of came and went without any real fanfare or attention. And I mean, that the dream back then, the goal was like, if we can get signed one day, then we've made it. You know, that's all we need. Right. Um, so I just self-released that debut. and But it was more of just my own brain basically saying, okay, this sounds pretty cool, but you basically went out of your way to try and sound like a certain band. And that's not really, if you're going to keep doing this moving forward, that's not really what it should be about. And from there on out, I think the fact that we had so few fans <laughs> at the time 
just made it easy to just be like, well, nobody, there's no expectations here at that, that point. So I'm just like, I'm just going to write whatever comes out pretty much and try to refine it from there. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it really wasn't any sort of outside influence or expectations from fans or anything like that. It was just, you know, I didn't like how hard I tried to sound like somebody right. else. Like, That's not what music should be. So, Was it stressful or did you feel any sort of pressure when you kind of wanted to take your own route or was it more of, I don't know, was it more, did it make you more relaxed to write your own music if you weren't trying to sound like someone in particular and just doing your own thing? It was definitely relaxed. The pressure has mounted more over the years, you know, over uh, as, as we get further down the road and more and more people have, have heard the music and like the music and come to expect, you know, the next one to be even better, of course. And you always want the next one to be better. And so now I'd say over the last few records is when we're kind of uh, putting the pressure on ourselves to kind of up the ante and, and uh, really deliver the goods here for the people. But early on, it was there was no expectation and it was just I took my time with it. Um, the second album came out only about a little over a year after the debut, but um, it's not like I was playing shows or anything. I was just sitting sitting in the back room at my parents' house writing music every night pretty much so I can just take my time with it. And, and it was very relaxed and free-flowing and just I didn't really censor myself. Um, a lot of acoustic guitars and stuff that I hadn't been using previously and, and stuff like that. And it was it was fun. It was a fun time. Yeah. And diving into the new record, uh, Fires in the Fall, I read that you said this almost felt like a double album in connection to the previous one since you, you wrote it immediately after The Sundering. Mm -hmm. But yeah. you said it's still very different. Why do you think it was so different, even given that quick turnaround with the writing of it? I don't know. Like we're we're pretty good. Justin's very good at basically developing not necessarily a mission statement, but just a clear theme and goal for each record. Um, you know, I mean that's the thing. Like I Craig's Rob is something that I formed, but since Justin has been in he's instrumental to this band, you know, being what it is today and uh, maintaining our focus and drive and everything like that. Uh, he keeps us on the right path here and we're just on the same page with our ideas. Um, so anything that gets put forth, we pretty much all, there's no butting of heads. We all pretty much see the same um, potential, you know, for these ideas, but um, yeah, the, the whole kind of double album, thing I think is assisted by you know the fact that we use the same studio and the same engineer for mixing mastering um, and the fact that we wrote the songs within such a short period from one another but um, yeah the sundering you know we took the heavy doom elements from the previous album leave no path to follow and we still wanted to have some of that in there but it, it definitely came to a point where we wanted more intensity we wanted faster songs but shorter songs uh, because man we've got some some whoppers in there in the in the old albums of 10 plus minutes and stuff and we said all right we got to shave these down yeah having cody in the band as well um bringing his his talents and his songwriting prowess and all that and uh is a ridiculous guitar player and a great songwriter as well so having him in there really energized everything and it was really one of his songs that he wrote that was the genesis of the direction we were going to go with the sundering so uh, we kind of had the idea from Justin putting it out there and it really wasn't until because we were kicking around some ideas here and there but once we heard of the first like finished full song that Cody presented uh, that's when you know the light bulbs went off and we were like okay this this is what we need to do moving forward and um, so we just kind of kept that same 
mindset as far as wanting to still have a good variety of tempos and still have some faster songs and stuff like that. But um, but we just don't dictate where the writing goes too much. So if we just all happen to be, I mean, we've got a million ideas, but the ones that we pick as being the best that we need to shape into the final songs, you know, for the album, uh, they just so happen to have more variety, more uh, melodic elements and things like that this time around. Um, there's still some very slow and heavy stuff in there. And yeah, we just, I feel like we just took some of the best elements from the Sundering and just, you know, turned them up to 11 pretty much for this one. And um, there's just a good mood that runs throughout. So it's very similar in sound and style for the Sundering, but I just say there's just more, everything that was good about the Sundering, there's more of it pretty much. I've heard the record. I wanted to point out just how huge I think and powerful, you know, this record sounds. And I think for me personally, the highlight of the record was the world we leave behind. And I think that really hits at the perfect time with the cadence, the riffs, the atmosphere, it all just really combines to hit at this perfect time. And then with the ever flowing vessel and alone with the setting sun, you know, respectively and everything in between the album just naturally flows together. Um, It starts off, really just again using the word powerful but then the ending and it bookends well um too so at what point did you narrow down like the sequencing of these songs and how how did you factor in how you wanted this to flow together uh it's always a challenge and um we we always kind of kick around some ideas we kind of uh we're a fan of doing the whole like here's the assignment all three of you do this on your own and then present your idea and then we'll see what what matches basically. So we all kind of made our own ideal track list uh, for how we felt like this should flow and we would compare it. And if, you know, we had some like, okay, two out of the three of us think this one should be the album opener. So we're going to keep that as the album opener. And, you know, all three of us think this one's a good album closer. So we definitely got to use that. So from there, we just kind of kick around uh, a different, you know, um, track listings and just kind of say, all come to an agreement that, yeah, that one works. But uh, usually most importantly would be, you know, album opener and album closer for sure. And those usually kind of are easy because they, they kind of present themselves that way. So just hearing the song, it doesn't take us long to just be like, that one's got to be our album closer. That's a powerful song. That's a great way to end it. And, um, but you're right. I mean, the flow of an album can make or break it sometimes, you know, you get some of these albums that are so front loaded with awesome songs for the first three tracks, four tracks, and then the rest of it just kind of becomes this, uh, you got to slog your way through some, some boring tunes at the back half of it, you know, so we just don't want that. We want to, anytime there's something slower and, or more melodic, you want to kind of follow it up with something that kind of hooks you back with some, some up-tempo stuff, you know, and right. it's important, like you said. And that kind of ties into my next question. The record feels thematic in a way that, you know, you have these high points, these tension builders, and then placed throughout are these moments that allow you to kind of sit back, breathe, take it all in before really being drawn back into it. Um, into yeah. you know, the chaotic is not the right word, but for lack of a better one, the more chaotic side of things after, you know, having that breathing room, you know, how much went into ensuring that this record did sort of have that ebb and flow to it where you could actually have these moments to, sit back, take in what just happened and then drive right back into it. Yeah. I mean, we didn't overthink it. You know, we, we just kind of let it come as it did. And, and just kind of, uh, like I said, once we kind of made our, our own individual track list of how we felt like it flow. And then we just kind of did, did our, 
our democratic discussion and come up with uh, with how it would work. But because uh, we all we've been doing this long enough, we're we're getting old now, so we've been doing this long enough that we kind of know the importance of it, and um, and we've heard enough music in our day to to kind of have a good idea of how successful albums you know should flow. Um, like the closer on this one, uh, Alone with the Setting Sun, is one that Cody wrote uh, music and lyrics to. And um, I think it's one of the best things he's ever written, honestly. Uh, there's so much in that song that's just really powerful and great, great guitar playing, of course. But um, it just has such a, a, a moody, you know, kind of dark atmosphere to it and uh, just almost a nature type vibe to it as well. And um, just great use of the acoustic guitars and all that. And that was just really clear to us that like that's a good statement song to, to close out the album. Um, but it's it's important, so we of course put a little pressure on ourselves with that. But we also try not to, you know, try not to overthink it, or we'll mess it up. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the band's been around now for nearly two decades. How, what are some of the biggest differences in terms of you know bringing ideas to the table in terms of writing, and how has that you know the writing process kind of progressed over the years into what it is today? So in the early days, um, I wrote all the music. And played all the music and uh, I would contribute to the lyrics but Chris our singer he wrote the m majority of the lyrics back then uh, we kind of split it 50 50 on the on the debut which was the only uh, full-length album that he sang on he was on a, a demo an EP and then uh, that full length and after that um, he didn't necessarily quit just life life got in the way you know he got married and career change and he was moving and all that type of stuff so he just kind of faded away but um so i just kind of took the reins from there and that's when i was just writing and writing and writing for luke's cop to est um and i had all the lyrics and i had vocal melodies in mind but since i can't i can't scream i can't growl i needed to to find somebody so one of the other bands i was playing at, at the time uh, was called obsidian throne and uh we had this guy jared who I just asked him, would you sing on this record for me? And he said, sure. So I, I gave him the lyrics and uh, told him how I wanted it to be sung, basically. And and he just knocked it out. But um, but it was after that point when Grove turned into a full band. And it was uh, at the urging of Justin and uh, Corey, our, our former guitar player. Um, they basically enjoyed Luke's Cop to Est so much that they said, dude, you got to turn this into a full band and we really want to be a part of it you know so i said sure and from there on out i've not really cared about maintaining tight control over anything like i know that i started it but it's like i know who i have in this band and they're excellent musicians and songwriters uh, in their own right and um, they're better they're better musicians than me like i'm I think I got them on drums. I can out drum these fools, <laughs> but they've got me on guitar and bass, you know, for sure. I still do bass on, on the records and all that. But uh, in terms of guitar playing, it's like, I'm not going to force these dudes to just play stuff that I write. Like they can write stuff better than I can half the time. So uh, yeah, there was, there was a pretty easy transition, but we, we would do some writing sessions together because uh, me and Corey, we even lived together for a stretch. Um, and we would just sit in the living room with our guitars and coming up with ideas and demoing things and uh, with Wes, our bass player as well. But Justin, he lives uh, about two and a half hours away, so we don't get to see him too often. There's a lot of uh, emailing of ideas and things like that. 
but back then for uh, the albums the carrion fields and uh, waves of degradation those were done with a lot of like in-person writing sessions but then it evolved again because uh, when it was back to two-piece just me and justin it was all it was all email you know and that's kind of how it's still gone uh, which is a shame like we always go into every album saying we got to get together for some writing sessions this time around and then you know schedules and life gets busy and we end up just kind of not doing it and we just write stuff on our own i kind of view it as the cannibal corpse writing method where everybody just kind of has their own ideas and you finish it out and you send it for you know approval <laughs> from the rest of yeah. us but i'm i'm always quick to admit if i'm stuck so if I get two thirds of the way through a song and I'm like, I don't know how to end this and I'll just send it to, you know, Justin and Cody and just be like, see if you can figure out something <laughs> how to end this song. But no, for the most part, we, we start them on our own and finish them on our own and send them. And, you know, we, we give the thumbs up way too much because we end up with 30 songs and we're just like, Oh Jesus, we got to whittle this down to eight, you know, and pick the best ones. But yeah, we just, we get on a roll, especially Justin. He gets on a roll these days and just sends you a, a new song every week. And you're just like, Jesus, man, just calm down. Let us catch up. Was it difficult giving up that creative control in the beginning? No. Like, I, just knowing those dudes, like, I had known them for, for years at that point uh, and played in a band with them briefly called Val's Guard. And um, so I kind of knew what they brought to the table. So uh, whenever they first proposed it, I was open to it because they wanted to play live too. They were like, these songs need to be played live. They're good, good songs. And um, so that excited me as well because I never thought about playing live with Krigsgrove ever really. So uh, the idea of being able to do that with a full band and then um, just knowing who they were as musicians and what they bring to the table. Um, I was, I was excited, very excited to have them in the fold. Did you start playing drums? Was that your first instrument that you started playing? Yes. Okay. So like in high school, I started when I was 13 and just playing Megadeth tunes and Metallica tunes and stuff and basic stuff, ACDC, you know. Um, but I basically started a band in high school before I even really knew what the hell I was doing. It was very Lars Ulrich. <laughs> so <laughs> I just kind of, there was a guy who would bring his guitar to the cafeteria and he was just noodling around, just nailing these Metallica solos and Ozzy Osbourne solos and stuff. And I just said, I got to steal that dude before somebody else does. And I'm glad I did because nothing pushes you to be better than playing with other right. musicians. So uh, we basically just started a Metallica cover band and played at the occasional pep rally and stuff like that. And um and yeah, it's just, it started from there and they used to practice at my house, my parents' house, and they would leave their instruments because back then we would practice every day, basically after school. So they would just leave their guitars, leave their basses. And that's kind of where I started just without their permission, picking up their instruments and screwing around and figuring things out and self-taught with everything. So it's all from watching videos and just figuring things out, you know, myself basically with other people's gear. <laughs> Man, people give Lars such a hard time and while he's not the best drummer in the world he is pivotal in constructing those early like metallica songs yeah. and he's so good at like the structure of the song that i guess you can kind of factor out that he's not dave lombardo back there yeah. or anything like that how important no, how important is that to just like have that guy in the band that just knows how to put a song together rather than being the most technical 
this sounds like a toot my own horn type thing, but that's what I've always tried to pride myself on is that I know I'm not the best musician, but I feel like when it comes to assembling stuff, I have a pretty good knack for that in terms of, of not letting things drag on too long. Of course, there are plenty of examples in that through Craig's Grove's career of songs that drag on a little too long. But, um, but no, we work together really well as a group with that these days with us in terms of, of editing ourselves, you know, and um, we, there's songs on this new one that we're pushing 10 minutes that we said, this is getting out of control. So we would rework it and edit things down and get it to where it's, you know, six and a half minutes and it's a much better, more effective song. But, um, but no, you're right. I mean, our old guitar player, Corey, he was never, and he admits this, this isn't a, a dig at him or anything, but he admits he's, he was never been the greatest guitar player. It, and it's more comes down to natural rhythm. Like you're just getting off time with things sometimes and stuff like that. But, you know, we always said if we were uh, all the characters from Captain Planet, he would have the he would have the heart ring, you know, he was the heart <laughs> and soul of the band. And he just puts so much um, emotionally into it. And on stage, he puts so much into it, you know, and and it just you could just see that and feel that from him on stage. And I think the people out in the crowd got that as well, where it was just he was an intense performer and he just loved the band so much and uh, and put a lot into it. And he was real hard on himself with recording and stuff like that to try and and uh, make sure it was it was good enough. You know what I mean? And I know he put a lot of pressure on himself, but he was definitely like that guy where it's like not having him in the band is just different. It just is. And it's not necessarily better or or worse or anything like that. But it's just, you know, you, you lose a that piece you know you can't help yeah. but feel it when you lose that guy you know yeah diving uh back into the new record again i saw that you know the record is named after a poem by robert stevenson someone was quoted i'm not sure if it was you or someone else but quoted saying that you know the poem represents the magic and the changing of the seasons from summer to fall and there's like a mystique in the air i guess almost menacing was the you know the phrase used but yeah. black metal in particular is, you know, synonymous with creating atmosphere. You know, at what point during the writing process did you know that this was kind of the atmosphere you wanted to achieve with the record? Was this whole, you know, changing of the seasons with the menacing atmosphere of that? Well, it's funny, like it was kind of a, almost an 11th hour switch with the, uh, the album title. And uh, initially, like the working title all along was uh, The World We Leave Behind. And... You know, that's that all kind of comes back to Justin as well as that, you know, I mentioned he always kind of comes at us with a clear kind of vision or a mission statement, so to speak, for where the album should go. And uh, that's kind of what we did with the Sundering and this one as well. So I think that kind of is the the genesis of the the more menacing vibe is just kind of the, you know, the, the where the world's going and what we're going to be leaving behind us for the next generations and things like that and how it's not great. <laughs> so yeah. that was kind of the the source of the mood. And then it was kind of a late in the game that Justin kind of pivoted and said, you know, the more I listen to these ideas, the more I kind of get this feel from it. And it reminds me of this poem and, you know, kind of presented it to me and Cody and we were, we were all in on it. You know, we liked the working title we had, but uh, once he kind of um, made his, made his pitch to us for it, uh, we definitely saw where he was coming from and felt like it suited the music well. And we just liked the whole direction uh, of that title and what we could do with it uh, album artwork wise and things like that. And it just kind of really uh, amped things up, you know, cause we 
we hadn't really come up with like an art concept or anything like that yet. So once he kind of presented that as a title, then it kind of got all of us excited and the wheels turning about what we could do, you know, moving forward with that. And it works. It works well with the music, I think. What have you found to be the most critical component in creating atmosphere for a record? Knowing when to let it breathe, because we tend to, we have two fantastic guitar players in this band and uh, they tend to put a lot of fantastic guitar layers in things. And that can very easily go too far with having just too much crap going on to where you can't truly appreciate any of it. You know what I mean? Like sometimes it's, there's so much going on, you can't really hone in on one particular thing. And I think that we um, have done well about um, knowing when to utilize a more minimalist approach and let the songs breathe a bit before you go into something else. And plus it makes the other parts more impactful if you keep things a little more stripped down for a whole section of a song and then it comes in with a really cool lead going over a chorus or whatever, then it makes it all the more impactful and you pay more attention to that lead and things like that. So I think that's something that we've gotten better at over the last uh, couple of records is just uh, knowing when to, when to reel it in a little bit. So lyrically and kind of thematically, is each song kind of about more so how the world is heading or uh, does each song kind of represent its own unique theme? Kind of its own unique thing. We, we still kind of, since we establish a direction at the beginning of the process, we still kind of keep that in the back of our heads when writing lyrics and things like that. So we're never going to pivot to, you know, have a random uh, political statement or something in our lyrics or something like that. They've always been pretty heavily um, tied to the natural world. So, you know, we, we don't go too much into the, um, the, the more human and... side of things, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like we've, we've gone way literal with that kind of natural nature vibe before, but uh, we, we tend to utilize it more as a um, metaphorical. So we kind of tie it into, you know, uh, just kind of how things in the natural world can eventually it's all cyclical and withers and dies and, right. and rejuvenation and things like that. So we kind of tie it into uh, the more human side of things that way. Um, but this time around, you know, we, cause we kind of divvy up the lyrics as well. Like I did lyrics for my couple of songs that I wrote and Cody did lyrics for a couple of songs and then Justin did the other four. Uh, so we all kind of have our own lyrical style as well. Um, I, I, I think anyways, people, other people might think they all sound the same or whatever, but I can kind of pinpoint little differences in our styles and stuff. But, um, but no, like the early days of Craig's Grove, it was more just storytelling, you know, there was no real message to be sent and things like that. But, uh, this time around, it does kind of tie into, I think the fact that we get older and stuff as well, and we have kids now and stuff like that. So we're kind of, we tend to focus more on the, on the world around us and what we're, what we're leaving what mess we're leaving for these kids, you know? So it all kind of, yeah. kind of ties into some personal experience as well. You mentioned to me that uh, you're a dad. What do your kids think of you know, the band? Well, he's six, my boy, okay. and he loves it. So like, he, oh, that's awesome. it's weird because he, I, I always figured I'm not going to push him into metal music and stuff, but if he it gets into it later, then that's cool. But he just, the little bits that he heard, he loved and he wanted to hear more. And um, so I would just be like, okay, well, I'll, I'll let you hear this band then. And it would just kind of evolve. Uh, YouTube was a big player. He would, I'd show him a video of like one guy 
doing a drum cam video and then he'd see all these other related videos of like the drummer from this metal band drummer from that metal band he's like i want to watch this one i want to watch that one so now he's got his own electronic drum set and he plays and um you know where he's he still needs to work on some discipline of sitting there and really (laughs) practicing beats instead of just going insane on that kid all the time but uh no he's he's kind of going backwards so he got way into extreme metal and he thinks the wow. vocals are cool and he copies the vocals and stuff. But now he's like branching out and getting into, you know, a wider variety of stuff. Like he's way into beatboxing right now of all things. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, but yeah, I'm all for it. You know, anything to expand his, uh, his horizons, but no, he's always been uh, s- supportive of it, but it's funny. Cause I think the, I think the novelty's worn off cause I'll, we'll demo a new song and I'll play it for him in the car and be like, here's a new one. You want to hear it? And he's like, yeah. And I'll play it and he'll say nothing the whole time. And then when it's over, I'm like, what'd you think? And he's just like, huh? Like he wasn't even paying attention. <laughs> like, whatever. Okay. You know, but no, he's, he's into it. Whenever we listen to the final product together and stuff, he just gives me a thumbs up and says, that was good. You know, He's going to grow up and his friends are going to be like, man, you got to check out Slayer. He's like, dude, that's soft compared to like Emperor. Yeah. Kid stuff, man. <laughs> yeah. He, he loves, he loves specific drummers too. And some oh, of okay. them, the, ba- the band name is so insane that I'm just refused to tell him what the band is called. Like he likes Trey Williams from dying fetus, but I have never once told him what the band <laughs> name is. So he'll just say, I want to listen to Trey Williams. I'll be like, you got it, man. And I'll put That's it cool. on for him. But I'm like, he, he still does not know what band he drums for, nor will he for a while. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, man. Again, thanks for doing this. Just a couple more questions for you. I know this might be kind of a broad one, but is the new record. I know it kind of has similar vibes to, you know, the Sundering, but is this new record a representation of kind of where you'd like to take Grove into the future? Or uh, do you think each record is just kind of going to be its own thing? As of now, I get the feeling that it's going to kind of be its own thing, each album. I don't know, like our our backgrounds and our influences that we've, you know, uh, taken in over the years, I think they're always kind of going to be present. Um, I really never thought to introduce some like melodic death metal stuff into it before until we did the sundering and then seeing how that works, like how well it integrated into our existing sound. um, I would love to continue to do more of that. I think that that blend, you know, that's why it's so hard when we do a post and uh, like Justin handles most of the posts and he'll do the hashtags and stuff at the end. And there's 50 million hashtags there because he'll put like black metal, death metal, doom metal, <laughs> melodic death metal. And I'm just like, it makes me laugh, but I'm like, it's true though. Like it's all in there and it blends really well. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like each album will be its own thing, but at this point I feel like we've really kind of hit a good stride with at least some of these elements that we're uh, including in there. So I think that some of these elements that are on the sundering and then now on uh, fires in the fall, I think those will continue to be there in the future to some degree. Looking back on Fires in the Fall, what are you most proud of? What am I most proud of? The fact that we were able to whittle down all of our ideas to just these, this group of songs and that we really felt like there's nothing, uh, there's no meat left on the bone, put it that way. We, we feel like we put everything that we could have put into it into these songs and they're the best that they can be like there's no you know everybody no nobody releases a perfect record you're always going to listen back to it and say yeah we probably could have tightened this part up a little bit or whatever but uh so i'm not saying this record's perfect by any means but we definitely come away with it come away from it with that feeling that like this this is the best we could do this is the absolute best we could have done and we're we're just proud of uh of the effort that we put into it and, and the finished product yeah 
Fires in the Fall, out June 23rd on Wise Blood Records. New single out right now. I guess before I let you go, how did you guys land on that single? So that's one that we just knew we were going to have to pick some singles uh, ahead of time. And so probably about a month, at least a month ago, we just kind of kicked it around like, all right, what's your, what's your top three? You know, and we all kind of presented our top three and, and picked the ones that we both all kind of like shared at least, you know, at least two out of the three of us think this one would be a good single. So we'll pick that one. But um, we landed on that single as the first one, just because it's one of the more intense, one of the more fast and ferocious ones on the album. Uh, and we felt like that was a good, uh, you know, smack upside the head for people to get their attention and and really uh, pay more attention to this record. So the ones uh, that will come out from here, the next two will be a little more varied, but we definitely, you know, all agreed on the idea that it should be one of the fast ones from the record should be that first single. Yeah. All right. Again, Fires in the Fall out June 23rd on Wise Blood Records. Um, it's out on pre-order right now, vinyl, cassette cd anywhere you get your streaming services the umpteen of them that are out there right now check it out david thanks so much for doing this man really appreciate it absolutely thanks for having me it was a lot of fun thanks for checking out that interview with david from Krigs grub again the new record will be out june 23rd on wise blood records on vinyl, CD, and cassette. And that record, again, is called Fires in the Fall. The album art is super sick, too. So, gotta give a shout-out to that. I always dig some cool black metal slash doom metal artwork. And, Carly, have you have I showed you the artwork? I don't think so. Here, let me, let me get your reaction live on the air. Ooh, it reminds me of that movie, The Witch exactly was my first reaction it is such a cool piece of art for the album and i think it fits perfectly with the atmosphere but anyway yeah pick up that record or pre-order it now on Kriggs Grov's band camp or the wise blood records band camp on whichever format you enjoy the most and now let's jump into my recommendation of the week it is Another Wise Blood Records band releasing their album Quest for the Mighty Riff on May the 19th. It is the glorious VHS. VHS has been in the death metal game since 2015, and Quest for the Mighty Riff takes an approach on sword and sorcery movies. They've been known to kind of go down the horror path before but this new record like i said takes a sword and sorcery approach and here is the description from wise blood records and vhs about the new album after collaborating two years ago on a vampire themed record i heard they suck blood vhs and wise blood records reunite for a new adventure Join VHS as they embark on a treacherous odyssey packed with monsters and black magic. Quest for the Mighty Riff is a concept record paying violent homage to sword and sorcery flicks. VHS sounds heavier than ever while grinding out genre decapitating death punk bangers based on classics like Conan the Barbarian, Masters of the Universe, and The Highlander. VHS has assembled a lethal group of guests for the record. 
including last week's guest here on Lost in the Catacombs, Hell Rippers James McBain, on the song Are You Afraid of Dragons? This album is for fans of Exhumed, Ghoul, and bands like Carcass. VHS packed the album with slashing solos and putrid snarls down to the final battle. By the power of Grey Skull, VHS and Wiseblood will release Quest for the Mighty Riff on May 19th. Until then, polish your broadswords and ponder your orbs and get ready for this year's craziest and most shamelessly fun death metal record. Carly, that sounds right up your alley. I was going to say, now I'm ready to get out my broadsword in the new Zelda game. That is a good idea. See, we should just throw this record on while playing the new Zelda. And that would be a sick evening in for sure. (laughs) But anyway, VHS will actually join the show here soon. So be on a lookout for that episode. Such a fun episode. Definitely one of the most enjoyable ones I've done thus far. And I can't wait to share that one with everyone. But by the time this podcast airs, you'll only have to wait 24 hours to listen to the new record, the new VHS record. So I'm giving you guys all a 24 hours notice. (laughs) How courteous. Yeah, it's very (laughs) courteous and very nice of me if I do say so myself. But anyway, as always... Don't forget to subscribe and follow the podcast and leave a five-star review if you dig the show. All of the socials can be found at the top of the episode or in the description of this podcast. So give us a follow so you don't miss anything. And another cheap plug here for my substack, lostinthecatacombs.substack.com. And as always, got to give a shout out to my guys in Mother of Graves for allowing me to use their song the emptiness of eyes in the intro and outro it's the song you hear under my voice right now if you made it this far thanks for tuning in we'll see you next week right here in the catacombs (laughs) 